give you all a very warm word of welcome to our service tonight. So obviously all who are gathered in and for those visiting with us, we do trust you'd feel very much at home among us. Uh, a special word of welcome to uh, Rick Hill. Rick's lovely to have you with us. Rick, as I was saying this morning, is PCI's uh, Discipleship and Development Officer. And I actually have tried to have Rick a number of times uh, for some uh, PW services, but they never happened because of COVID and, and lockdowns. So it is lovely to have you with us, Rick, uh, here this evening. Just remind our members, if you haven't picked up the wee voters slips uh, this morning for the committee election, please do so on the way out this evening. As we worship our great God together, let me just read a few words from Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Those words are very much going to be echoed in our opening praise uh, this evening. 10,000 reasons. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. This is really a praise in which we are talking to ourselves. It's not a sign of madness. It's a biblical thing to talk to yourself, really encouraging ourselves, encouraging each other to really give the praise that the Lord deserves.
Let's all join together in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the words of that praise, the words of that psalm would just remind us that we need to bless you. We need to praise you. Father, one of the impacts of sin in our lives is that we lose sight of your greatness. We're blinded to your glory. Father, we get distracted from focusing on Jesus the way we should. And so often, Father, instead of a people of praise and gratitude. We're a people who are caught up in ourselves and our focus is inward. And Father, so often we just have lost sight of the being the worshiping people that you call us to be. And yet, Father, even as that praise has reminded us, there are 10,000 reasons and indeed many more why we should sing your praise. We should sing your praise because of the God who you are. You're this God who is perfect. You're this God who is flawless. You're this God who doesn't have a, a single fault. You're the God who is pure and clean. You're the God who is light. The God who lives in that unapproachable light. Father, we live in a world of darkness. We live in a world of sin and evil. And that has become to us because of us, Lord, because of man's rebellion against you. And that is so different to the God that you are. So clear, so clean, so perfect. Father, we think of the, the cry of the seraph, holy, holy, holy. So pure, so removed from our sinfulness. But Father, we also praise you that you're this God of, of grace, mercy, compassion. The God who reaches down to us in your Son, the Lord Jesus, reaches down to the undeserving. We think of how Jesus, when he walked on this earth, he was scorned for mixing with the sinners, the undesirables, the outcasts. And those who criticized him for that they just fail to realize that that is truly who we all are, the undesirable and the outcast. But Father, we thank you that Jesus has come not only to bring us forgiveness, <coughs> but Father, he's come to bring us cleansing and to restore us. He's come to lift us out of this old life caught up in self to a new life, where truly our cry is, bless the Lord. 
O my soul. He has come to make us worshipers of the living God. He's come so that we would be followers of Christ, disciples living for your glory and for your honor. <clears throat> and so, Father, we pray that this evening as we come and worship you, we would know your help. You'd be with Rick as he shares with us, that we just understand more of what discipleship is and, Father, have a passion for it for ourselves as individuals, and for us as a church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm sorry that I'll cough. I haven't coughed all day. If we get back in the pulpit, it starts again. Apologies for that. Okay, we will hear. Okay, boys and girls, young people, we're going <coughs> to continue just thinking about some of the, the women of the Bible. And tonight we're going to think about a, a tremendous lady called... Abigail. And Abigail was married to a man called Nabal. And it's during the time we'll see in the next picture when David was on the run from King Saul. And you remember he had his men and they needed food, they needed different provisions in order to keep going. And they're in the region where this man Nabal lived. We'll see in the next picture he was a very wealthy man. He was used to feasting. He had 3,000 sheep. He had 1,000 goats. So he had plenty in order to keep going, and he had plenty that he could share with others. And David and his men, he helped protect Nabal's shepherds, protect Nabal's flocks. They were like a wall around them, so they would be kept safe. And so in the next picture, David sent some of his men to ask Nabal if he would give just some food. They, they weren't able to grow crops. They didn't steal anything. And so they asked if they could have a bit of food for them to keep going. And the next picture shows us they didn't get a very good response. Nabal was pretty grumpy. He was not happy at all. And he basically says, huh, all these people are turning away from their masters. Speaking of how David was not obeying Saul, who was trying to kill him. And so he says, listen, I'm going to give you nothing. And so the men, the next picture, they come back to David. And David is pretty, pretty furious. And David was not the sort of person, boys and girls, you should anger. Because remember, David was a soldier. David had a sword. David had mighty men who could fight battles. And David was so furious, he got his men all set so they would go and kill Nabal. They would punish Nabal for how he had treated them. But Nabal, and his name means a fool, and he was a fool, his good, good thing about him was, we see in the next picture, was he had a very beautiful and a very wise wife. And when she heard what had happened and how Nabal had been so unfair to David and his men, who had protected him and his flocks over the, the months, she gets into action. And what she does, she organizes a pile of food. We see in the next picture. She organizes, I think it's five sheep. She sends roasted grain. She sends uh, figs. And she sends other things as well. Loads of food for David and his men. They go in front, and then we see in the next picture, she comes and she pleads that David would not come and kill her husband. We call this, boys and girls, interceding. She is interceding for her husband, so David's anger would be turned away. And boys and girls, that's a picture of what Jesus does for us. 
We have all sinned against God. The Bible says we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all deserve to be punished by God. And the one who intercedes with God's wrath, God's punishment, will not come on us, is the Lord Jesus. That's why he lived and died on the cross. And even now, boys and girls, the Bible tells us at God's right hand, Jesus is interceding, speaking up for his people. Isn't that wonderful? Maybe you've done something bad and you're going to be punished and somebody maybe speaks up and says, oh, don't punish them. Well, Jesus does that with God the Father for his people. And boys and girls, when we know that that has happened to us, when we know we have been forgiven through coming to trust in Jesus, we have a role like Abigail. Abigail, Nabal's wife, who interceded for her husband. And boys and girls, you have people in your class in school, primary school, secondary school, those your university, and maybe there's no one in their family who's praying for them to be saved, to become Christians, to be rescued from God's wrath. Boys and girls, you have that task. You can talk to God. You can talk to Jesus. You can intercede the way Abigail does so they would be rescued from their sin and come to know Jesus. If you haven't done it already, boys and girls, why don't you make a wee list of the people in your class or write their names on a piece of paper, loads of different pieces of paper, put them in a wee box, and every night pull out one or two of those in your class to pray for them, that God would work in their hearts and lives. Well, let's get back to Abigail. She speaks for da- to David. And we see in the next picture, David, well, he's blown away. He realizes this is an amazing lady, and so he decides, okay, he'll not go and give Nabal what he deserves. Abigail goes back to her husband, Nabal. She doesn't speak to him that night because he's busy partying and he wouldn't be in the right mood to listen. But next picture we see that the next morning, she speaks to him and tells him what she has done in order to save his life. And the the Bible says his his heart basically gave way. He, He didn't die at that point, but he gave up life. He was so frightened that basically he froze. And then 10 days later, we're seeing our, final, our next picture, he fell down and he died. God, the Bible says, killed him because he was such an evil man. This wasn't the end of the story. Our final picture we see, David marries Abigail, realizes she's a beautiful woman, but also a very wise woman. And he takes her to be his wife. Now, we problem. He had a few other wives as well, so he wasn't exactly following God's plan. But she was a lovely lady. She was a wise lady who was interceding for others. And may we know God's help to be able to do that for those around us, that we would intercede for them. We're going to sing our praise, and then after we sing this, Rick will come and lead the rest of the service. Uh, speak, O Lord, as we come to you.
Well, good evening, everyone. It's lovely to be with you in Brookside. I think I was, as uh, was said earlier, I think I was due to be with you maybe in March 2020. And then Boris told us to stay in our homes. And uh, I wasn't able to join with you that, at that time. And I think there was another date as well that was uh, maybe scheduled for another time. So it is lovely to finally uh, get, to, get among you two years later. And sure, what's happened? Sure, in the last two years, not much. Uh, but uh, it's lovely to, to join with you tonight. Also, I think I was, it was about 15 years ago that I stood in your youth club one Saturday night, actually, as a, as a young Bible college student uh, to, to give the epilogue tonight. And I, I can't really remember, but I'm guessing that there might, that might be easier to keep people's attention tonight, although I could be wrong, you know, so we'll, we'll see how we go. But um, as was said, uh, my name is Rick. I'm Discipleship Development Officer for PCI, I have been for the last seven years. That really just means helping to try to resource churches with both resources and training in the area of discipleship, in the, in the area of how we continue to grow in our faith and follow Jesus well in our lives. And we're going to be, think, we're going to be thinking about that tonight together um, as well. I'm married to Sarah with two little boys, another one on the way as well. And uh, we live just up the road in Doak, actually, so it wasn't too far to, to come among you tonight. But we're going to read together from Colossians chapter 2. If you have a Bible, I'd love you to, to open it. Uh, the words look like they're on the screen as well uh, for us. We're going to read Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. And then a little bit later on, uh, we're going to touch on a couple of verses from Mark chapter 3 as well. But uh, we'll start here in Colossians chapter 2, verse 1. This is God's Word. I want you to know how hard I'm contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. And we'll end our reading of God's word there, thanking him for it and asking him to apply it to our lives. Um, last year, I was out running in a forest, not a million miles away from here, uh, where hundreds of trees or, well, lots of trees had been cut down. I came across a section of the forest that was just now a barren and wide open space. It used to be a whole section of trees, but they had all gone. They'd been deliberately removed or cut down. But what caught my attention most was that right next to the section of trees that had been deliberately removed, there were a section of other trees that seemed to have fallen down accidentally or all by themselves. They were like the front row 
front row of trees of the very next section of forest. And as I began to run, as I continued to run along that day, I began to think to myself, was it just a coincidence? Was it just a coincidence that these trees had fallen down at the same time? These trees that had stood for hundreds of years, perhaps, had fallen down at the exact same time or a similar time as had been removed, as the others had been removed alongside them. For whatever reason, they had found that they weren't strong enough to survive in the conditions. Was it just a coincidence? Or was it because these trees had been strengthened and supported by the other trees alongside them? Maybe by the roots and their nutrient system or the strength of linking together or actually the fact that these trees had maybe left them or kept them from being exposed to the wind. And whenever that was taken away, they found they weren't strong enough to survive against the elements. For me, this became like a parable of the times that we have been and were living through. For some found it hard, found that they didn't have enough strength to stand whenever the other things around them that they might have lent on and relied on had been stripped away. We've been isolated like never before in many ways, physically, but also spiritually too. Maybe we find that hard. Maybe some have found that hard, those who maybe no longer walk with Jesus in the ways that they might once have done. Perhaps some were fine in the kind of safety of the sanctuary, but struggled to, and were, felt unprepared for environments where their faith was challenged. Maybe they were okay on the mountaintops of faith, but experience in the valleys caused a weakening. They felt exposed to the elements. And for whatever reason, those with no roots or a lack of roots eventually struggle to stand. I want to think about roots as we begin tonight. You see, the Apostle Paul understood the need for good roots, for strong roots. He understood the need for discipleship. This is what he writes to the Colossian believers. He was encouraging them, these young believers, to be rooted and built up in Him, in Jesus, strengthened in the faith as they had been taught and overflowing with thankfulness. I come from a background in youth ministry, spent about a decade in youth ministry, and if I'm honest, I have seen far too many teenagers and 20-somethings start well in faith, only to seemingly walk away from Jesus after a while. But it's not just the young either, is it? I've known peers who I've served Jesus with, or even older Christian leaders who I've been influenced by, who it seems have left the church behind or even give up on faith altogether. For me, it highlights why we need discipleship, why discipleship is important, because it's not inevitable that we stay close to Jesus. If the lives of other disciples are anything to go by, it's not a given. Discipleship is important because it's not just about coming to Christ, but continuing to live in Him, to pick up the words that Paul uses 
in this passage, and we'll look at that in a moment. See, we find ourselves at a really significant moment in history. Every time you turn on the news, you probably hear that. It's a significant moment in history. Culture is changing. Christianity is no longer the dominant worldview or an accepted norm, even in Northern Ireland. 21st century Christians find ourselves pushed to the edges of contemporary culture, exiled, feeling like exiles in a strange land. The narrative has changed from maybe us being the good people to actually even us being seen as not just backward but bad and even dangerous in places. For some people, that has led or might lead them to choosing a more comfortable way, to choosing comfort or compromise as their response and laying down their cross for an easier ride. Others might unconsciously replace or abandon lifelong spiritual patterns in a way that might cause their root systems of faith to crumble or weaken, thinking of the story or the image at the start. But Paul is saying, be rooted, be built up. Here he uses a a kind of mixture, actually. It's a strange mix of agricultural and construction language in the same verse or the same sentence. Agricultural language have deep roots that nourish us spiritually to invest in what's below the surface of our lives, but also to be built up through firm foundations, of course, but to to build upon the foundation of, of teaching that we have received in our lives and through the church and through the Word of God in our life. See, when we put down roots in Him, we are built up in the knowledge of all that He provides us with. That's a picture. This verse is a picture, an image of discipleship being rooted down and built up. So we should be growing down and growing up, if that makes sense. You see, we all participate in discipleship. Do you realize that the whole world is being discipled? It's not just Christian believers who seek to be discipled. Whether we're aware of it or not, everyone is being shaped and formed and transformed. Whether we realize it or not, every time we watch something, listen to someone, read something, participate in something, engage in an activity, or even a conversation, we are being shaped. We are all disciples of someone or something, either by accident or by intention. Some are being discipled by the crowd. What does the crowd think? They're influenced by the the crowd and that thinking, and they get influenced by that. Some are influenced by the culture and the cultural narratives that sweep around us. Some are influenced by their career and the desire to achieve more and climb the ladder. Or we could be influenced by Christ and be discipled by Him. You see, the kingdom of self conditions us to think that the world's all about us. That's the way that the world shapes us. It shapes our thinking to say it's all about your needs and my needs and my rights and my desires. It's a kind of kingdom that shapes our thinking and it's attractive at times. You know, cameras, you know, cameras point towards us through selfies, you know, social media broadcasts our opinion. There's a, a kind of age of consumerism that tells you you can have whatever you want. It sounds good. The kingdom of consumerism pushes us to own and to have and to spend. 
the temptation to envy the possessions of others, to feel like we need more stuff to be happy. There's the kingdom of digital technology that turns us into people of the screen where media or other options fill our minds and our worldview more than the Word of God and the claims of Christ. See, we are all being discipled every day. The question is, who or what are we being discipled by? And Paul knows this. And so he writes this to the Colossians. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition. See, Paul is urging these Colossian believers not to be taken captive by the narrative of their day, of the, Coloss- the philosophers of his society, but instead to be shaped most of all by Christ. You see, discipleship is important. We need it because the culture wants to disciple us too. Discipleship will help us to keep following Jesus. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a disciple of Jesus who served God in the 1930s in the midst of Nazi Germany. In fact, as Nazi power grew, Bonhoeffer actually lived in New York, and he was an incredible kind of teacher and professor. And he was so concerned about what was happening within his homeland that he traveled back home. And in 1935, Bonhoeffer created a a kind of underground Bible college, an underground seminary that was built on a vision of discipleship. He wanted to form people in a way much more in the ways of Christ, in in a world where he, in a country where he was so worried about how they were being shaped by the Third Reich instead. And one friend came to visit him at a seminary, and the story goes that he approached Bonhoeffer and thought it was all a bit too much. It was all a bit extreme what they were doing and how they were shaping people and forming people in the ways, in the Word of God and the ways of Jesus. And Bonhoeffer took his friend to a hill nearby, and on that hill, as they climbed that hill, they got to the top of the hill, and they looked down into a valley. And in that valley, there was um, lots of, hundreds of young people being trained by the Hitler Youth, the Nazi Youth. And Bonhoeffer showed him the kind of formation that was going on in these young people's lives. And he pointed to that, pointed his friend to that, and then he pointed back to his seminary. And he said, do you see this? Because of what's happening here, this, and he's pointing to a seminary, this must be stronger than that. This must be stronger than that. What he was saying was, it's not, it's not too much that what we're doing. It's not too extreme, but there's a need to shape people in the Word of God and in the ways of Jesus because the culture was shaping them in a strong way. We need discipleship because of the strength of cultural formation that's going on in all of us, by the way. But there's another reason we need discipleship, not just because the culture is strong, but because Jesus calls us to continue. Paul writes in verse 6, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in Him. This is really important because God's intention for our lives isn't just, we'll use a couple of big words here and then I'll unpack them a little bit, but God's will for lives isn't just justification, it's sanctification. 
Or to put it another way, once we have been made right with God, He wants to begin to help us to look like Jesus. That's discipleship. It's learning to be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do the things that Jesus did. Or to put it how C.S. Lewis wrote, he said that the church exists for nothing else but to draw people into Christ and for them to become, and I love this little phrase, to become like little Christs. If they are not doing that, he wrote, all the cathedrals, clergy, missions, sermons, even the Bible itself are simply a waste of time. What do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be a little Christ, shaped and formed in His image. You see, we need discipleship because God's plan for our life isn't just a place, but it's to become like a person, Jesus, His Son. And so the Christian life begins and continues with Jesus forever. Paul's saying, just in the same way that you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, the call is to continue to live for Him. Whenever I was a student, I really looked forward to graduating. I looked forward to getting out of there, I was going to say, but graduating and, you know, wearing the, not necessarily wearing the gowns, but getting the certificate and passing and, and getting on with my life to completing my studies and moving on to the next thing. You know, Paul is saying here, we don't graduate as Christians. We don't graduate from Jesus. It's not that we kind of come to know Jesus and then try to move on to something else. You see, the, way, the same way that we got into the kingdom is the same way that we get through the kingdom. Discipleship continues in the same way it started, by dependence on Jesus. Just as we receive Christ Jesus as Lord, we are to continue to live our lives in Him. We don't graduate. Someone said, we don't need more than Jesus. We simply need more of Jesus. We don't need more than Jesus. We need more of Jesus. So then, as Paul writes, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue. It's not just about praying a prayer once. It's about continuing to live our lives in Him, being rooted and built up, strengthened in the faith. So that's a little bit this morning about, sorry, this evening, about the need for discipleship. But I also want to take a little bit of time to think, help us think about the nature of discipleship. What does it look like? How do we do it? How does it happen? The answer, to ask it in a different way, how do we grow? How do we grow as followers of Jesus? How do we become more like Him? What's the nature of discipleship? Whenever I was at school, I can remember being in maths class, and my maths teacher constantly, remember her, her saying the same thing to me over and over again. She used to look at my work or look at my answers, and she used to say, I don't want to just see the answer on your page. I want you to show me your method. I want you to show me your working out. And that really annoyed me, because I used to think, or try to say back, it doesn't matter. If I've got the right answer, it doesn't matter how I ended up there. If I've got the right answer, surely that's all that matters. But probably she was trying to work out if I'd copied down the answer from the friend or the back of the book, or if I'd arrived at the answer by getting there myself. But also whenever maybe the answer wasn't quite right, it was to able for her to work out and to show me where I'd gone wrong in the process. She always said, show me your method. 
Now, obviously, we attach lots of significance to the message of Jesus, and rightly so. But sometimes we just miss some things about the method that Jesus went about his life and ministry. Because Jesus had a method in how he grew his disciples and his discipleship. Greg Ogden writes this, we've less of a message problem today than we do a method problem. We haven't been looking to Scripture to show us how, to, how people grow to maturity in Christ. What was the method of Jesus? Now, we could take weeks on this, but let me just show us two verses tonight that highlight part of Jesus' method of discipleship. It says that he went, Mark 3, verse 13, says that he went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. Three quick comments about this this evening. Jesus' discipleship was intentional. It's interesting how the journey of discipleship started for these Jesus followers. Jesus had gathered a large group of followers, but he moved in this moment from, a track, from simply just attracting a crowd and speaking and staying at a distance to beginning to invest in just a few. He went up a mountainside and called to him those he wanted. We're told that he appointed 12. And I find the approach of Jesus fascinating here because he could have chosen to do ministry whatever way he wanted. He could have filled stadiums. He could have toured the world. He could have drawn crowds. He could have done some kind of miracles tour and drawn in crowds and impressed people and influenced kings and convinced Caesar. But he chose to invest in a small group of people who went on to impact the whole world. Jesus was intentional. He chose often to escape the crowds, to instead be with his Father alone, but also to invest in the few. And so often our lives maybe flow in the opposite direction at times. We're busy, there's lots going on, there's activity. Maybe we feel the pressure to be with lots of people. Yet often we remain at the surface of our faith rather than pursuing depth. This is the image that I love. It challenges me too. The image of the iceberg, where the strength of the iceberg isn't found in what's above the surface, but in what's below. Discipleship helps us to consider and push down beneath the depths of what people see above the surface, of what we even show above the surface. You see, Jesus didn't just put on a show to attract the crowd. He invested deeply in people. Are we remaining at the surface, the surface of our own faith in life, or are we prioritizing deep devotion to Him? Are we pursuing Him beyond what every other, everyone else sees, but also with other people in our lives as well? How can we be intentional with others and pursue depth of relationship with others as we seek to maybe influence and disciple other people, whether that's people in our home, it's people in our lives or friendships, whether it's other people within the family of God here in this church, of how we can be intentional and draw alongside others. You see, Jesus was, dis, um, was, was intentional, but he was also relational. Did you notice that? He appointed 12 
that they might be with him. Jesus was showing that discipleship was done up close in relationships with people's lives. Jesus didn't just sign them up for a class or tell them to read a book. He actually spent time with his followers. He walked with them and talked together and ate together and served together. What a picture. What a picture of whole life discipleship as we draw alongside others so that we can help one another grow. It's not just that I might draw alongside someone so that I can teach them all that I know. It's that I would draw alongside others so that we could be able to encourage and support one another, perhaps that I might help them grow, and that they might encourage me in my faith too. If we're to model Jesus' way of discipleship, then it's going to involve open, openness in our lives, maybe even in our homes. It'll involve sharing our lives with others in the context of the family of God and within our homes. Can we follow Jesus' model of discipleship and relationship by being with people? Being with Jesus, not just doing stuff for Jesus as well. Pursuing depth and being intentional, but also pursuing people and being relational. And then last little comment on this approach from Jesus. Jesus' discipleship was missional. This is really important. For Jesus, discipleship wasn't just about inner transformation. It certainly wasn't just about creating some nice, nicer people or creating a kind of holy huddle or inner Christian clique. Actually, it was to push them outwards. He appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out, send them out to preach. You see, the nature of discipleship isn't just to surround ourselves in Christian activity and leave it there, but rather that Christian activity should equip us and empower us and build us up in the faith so that we are sent out to a world in need so that through our jobs and through our friendships and through our family and through even our social, um, uh, our social lives, through our hobbies and interests and our com- how we interact in the wider community, that we show and model and even speak the words in the way of Jesus to the people around us. When Jesus called his disciples, he was inviting them to a life of transformation, but also to mission and ministry. Follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. Do you hear it? Follow me, so learn from me, and I will make you, I will transform you into fishers of men. In other words, mission. There's a following, there's a transformation, and then there's a mission. Maybe tonight, as you consider the idea of discipleship, maybe you might want to consider which of those aspects you might need in your life right now. Maybe for some of us, it's the following Jesus part. Even hearing that invitation to follow him afresh, or even for the first time, to hear that invitation and say, yes, I want to pursue Jesus like he has pursued me. I want to be intentional by following him in my whole life. 
Maybe it's the transformation part that maybe there's works and aspects of our life, well, there, there are in all of our lives, that Jesus wants to transform for us to become more like Jesus. Or maybe it's the outward part where we realize that actually Jesus is calling us to live as his followers in the classroom, in the home, in the community, and in the church to be disciples in our whole life. You see, mission was actually a training ground for, for disciples where Jesus sent them out, but then he brought them back so that they could learn from him again and again. It was this constant cycle. Come to me, sent out. Come to me, sent out. Going in mission helps us grow in maturity. Going in mission helps us grow in maturity. So if you want to become more mature in your faith, one way is for you to read this more. Another way is for you to come around the activities of the church and, and be part of those corporate activities, the ordinary means of grace and the community life of the church. But another way is for you to serve God in mission, to rely on him more fully as you're pushed out of your comfort zone. It's been said that Jesus didn't tell all the world to come to church, but he told all the church to go to all the world. How are we going? Are we retreating in these days where it might be easy to do? Or are we being fueled and equipped in our discipleship so that we grow, so that we're rooted and built up so that we can go? We grow so that we can go. Jesus' model was to grow disciples who would go into all the world. His discipleship was missional. I want to finish with this. My dad worked in engineering for years. Um, for the most part of his career, he was involved just up the road in the mechanical engineering department of the Northern Regional College or whatever it was called in different uh, times in Ballymena. Um, he retired a few years ago when he was reflecting on the way, he would want me to tell you he took early retirement a few years ago, sorry. Uh, and he was reflecting on just some of the ways that his career had changed over the years. And one thing he said a couple of years to me really, a couple of years ago really struck me. Because in a bit of a rant over the Sunday lunch table, you would never have a rant over the Sunday lunch table, I'm sure. But he declared this. He said, you see, the problem is this. He said, I said, what's the problem, Dad? He said, the problem is this. The art of apprenticeship has been lost. And he was complaining and bemoaning the fact that maybe how they were being conditioned or taught it was all about learning in the classroom and not about learning on the job. He said in the early days, you know, you sent out people and they learned on the shoulder of people. They watched someone model and they then learned to imitate it. They learned on the job. And I don't know if he's right about engineering, okay? But I wonder if his comment might be true, not of education, but of spiritual formation. If we're overly reliant at times on living our lives as some kind of Christian consumer where we come and we rely on someone else to give us the answers rather than digging deep into God's Word ourselves, learning from others, the lives of others, and putting it into practice in our life. Can we learn to be apprenticed afresh to Jesus in these days? To come on his shoulder, to follow his feet, to learn from our rabbi, to be discipled afresh by Jesus.
as his apprentices and put into practice the things that we're learning from him. We need discipleship because the strength of our culture and because of the call to continue to become more like Christ. And the nature of that discipleship is apprenticeship to Jesus through being intentional, through being relational, and in mission. Maybe the art of apprenticeship has been lost for you, and maybe you need to recover it afresh at this time and in these days. Let's pray. Maybe just as I pray, why don't we just take a moment for, for you to reflect on that question. For you to reflect on where you are in your apprenticeship to Jesus. To be reminded of the call to even follow him in the first place. The challenge to be transformed more into his likeness. Or the call to serve him missionally through our lives. Just reflect on that for a moment. Even pray quietly. And then I'll lead us in a moment. Lord God, we thank you that you don't leave us to live our lives as your people on our own. We thank you that you've given us your word, your church, your people, to help to guide us and to lead us into maturity. We pray tonight that you would help us and enable us to be rooted and built up. I pray tonight for young disciples of Jesus here. Pray that you would help them to build firm foundations, to put down deep roots that enable them to stand when difficulties come. I pray tonight for seasoned disciples who've been following you for years. And I pray tonight that they would catch a glimpse of a fresh vision of apprenticeship to Jesus that, that involves all of their lives and also would lead them to be an intentional with others here as part of your body. Would you help us all to become more like you in your image, in your likeness, so that we might be examples to other, others who are younger in the faith, encouragers to those who we serve alongside, but also that we might be an influence to people far from you in our world. We want to follow you, Jesus. And as we do, would you uh, transform us into your likeness and help us to be fishers of all people wherever we are. We ask for your help with this, we pray, in and through your son's name. Amen. We're going to uh, stand and sing our closing hymn, which is, I didn't pick it, but it's been uh, really well chosen. It's, May the mind of Christ my Savior live in me from day to day, asking a prayer as we close, asking Jesus to shape in us, in us the mind of Christ as we live our lives. Let's stand and sing.
the words of um, a benediction at the end of the letter of Jude. And now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time and forevermore. Amen.